0: In the U.S., our prisons are full of people who grew up attending our worst schools. So what happens when they can enter a first-class college program inside prison? We'll talk to an alum of the program and the woman who made a documentary about it, College Behind Bars. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice.
1: Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. To support the show and unlock extra content and more exclusive benefits, become a member at Patreon.com criminalinjustice Criminal Injustice.
2: Welcome
0: to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your total justice geek and nerd, and your personal guide to our dysfunctional criminal justice system, and still so happy with that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And before we get into the episode, we want you to think about becoming a member and a supporter of what we do here on Criminal Injustice. Go to our Patreon link at patreon.com criminalinjustice where you can join and get access to extra content like our special series on the criminal justice platforms of the 2020 candidates for president and much more. First, 100 people to join get a signed copy of my 2012 book, Failed Evidence Why Law Enforcement Resists Science. We've talked a lot on criminal injustice about mass incarceration. The numbers are truly staggering, with well over 2 million of our fellow citizens in prisons and jails. Over 90% of those people will someday be released, of course, so it's worth asking what will happen to them when that day comes. The answer, sad to say, is for most of them nothing good. According to the Federal Bureau of Justice statistics, 68% of all those released are rearrested within three years, 79% are rearrested within six years, and 83%, that's more than four in five, are rearrested within nine years. In California, with one of the largest state prison populations in the country, 65% of those released from prison return to prison within three years. We can only look at these numbers as a colossal failure. We call our prison and jail systems Departments of Corrections. Yet it sure doesn't seem that most people are getting any kind of correction when the failure rate starts at about two out of three and just gets worse over time. Some of this is about what happens once people are released. Few jobs open to them, they may not have places to live or family to rely on, and they may be released without necessary mental health care. But some of it is about what we do with people when they are in prison to prepare them for when they leave. We do very little. For the most part, honestly, we do nothing. And it's not as if we don't know what would help. We do know. Education in prison, certainly getting a GED, but higher education even more so, that's one thing we know helps people to succeed when they get out. Having some schooling of any kind, the more and the more sophisticated, the higher level, the better, changes incarcerated people and their future prospects. And we used to do this. We used to do a lot of it. But back in the 1980s and the 1990s, rehabilitation of any kind and any funding for education for incarcerated people was slashed. We had prisons and they were for punishment. People in prison who wanted education had been able to qualify for federal Pell Grants to fund their efforts at education. With the now infamous 1994 crime bill signed by President Bill Clinton, championed by a certain Senator Joe Biden, among many others, we got more police officers, more prisons, and the federal funding for education dried to a trickle and disappeared. It was short-sighted, it was mean-spirited, and it actually made the public less safe because it would only increase recidivism by depriving the very people motivated to make something of themselves of the very chance to do that. A number of interested individuals outside the prison walls saw this happening. They watched the government withdraw from educating prisoners, and they decided to step into that role as best they could by bringing a full, rigorous undergraduate college program to six of New York State's prisons under the sponsorship of Bard College, a well-known and respected institution. And thus was born the Bard Prison Initiative, or BPI, a demanding academic program with highly competitive admission standards that would not just give one-off classes. It would offer an entire course of study, resulting in Associate of Arts or Bachelor of Arts degrees. The program is an extraordinary chance for men and women who haven't had the opportunities for a real deep educational experience to prove to the world and to the prison system that they are not defined by being in prison and that one day they will leave it and they will succeed. Here's the voice of one of the people in BPI, Rodney, as he talks first about being a prisoner and then about being a student. Take a listen.
3: I've been incarcerated for 13 years and from my experience I can tell you Prison is here to punish us. It's here to warehouse us. But it's not about um, rehabilitating. It's not about creating um, productive beings. College, it helps us become civic beings. It helps us understand that we have an interest in our community, that our community is a part of us and we are a part of it.
0: Our guests today are involved in a documentary about the Bard Prison Initiative. It's called College Behind Bars, and it airs on November 25th and 26th of 2019 on PBS. Wesley Keynes serves as the chief of staff at the Bronx Defenders, a nonprofit organization that provides a wide array of holistic legal services. In previous positions with the organization, he worked with the office's clients and with community members, and he's also done policy work across the spectrum of criminal justice reform issues. Before joining Brock's Defenders, Mr. Keynes served as the reentry specialist coordinator and advocate at Brooklyn Defender Services. He is a graduate of Bard College, that's the BPI program, and New York Theological Seminary, and he has successfully trained over 30 students in reentry policy work. He speaks frequently about his unusual personal experiences at colleges and universities across the country, telling the story of his journey from young incarcerated person to a graduate of the Bard program to his current position. Running programs in a vital nonprofit agency. Lynn Novick is an award winning documentary filmmaker, a recipient of the Emmy Peabody and Alfred I. DuPont Columbia Awards. She has been directing and producing landmark documentary films about American culture, history, politics, sports, art, and music for PBS for 30 years. She's a regular collaborator of Ken Burns, with whom she's created The Vietnam War. Baseball, Jazz, Frank Lloyd Wright, The War, and Prohibition. College Behind Bars is Novick's solo directorial debut, co-produced by Novick's producer and creative collaborator for more than 20 years, Sarah Botstein. She's currently developing a major series on the history of crime and punishment, in America. Both of them were part of College Behind Bars, a four-part documentary series on the Bard Prison Initiative, which, as I said, begins airing on PBS on November 25th and then airs again on November 26th. Wesley Keynes and Lynn Novick, welcome to Criminal Injustice.
2: Thank you, David, for having us. Yes, it's a pleasure.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad you're both here. Uh, Wes, if it's okay, I'd like to start with you. Uh, One of the most moving things I saw when I watched the series was to hear students describe who they were and what they were like before they began the program in contrast to who they are when we see them as very serious students and even graduates. And I'd like it if you could take us back on your own journey Take us all the way back to the beginning. Who was the Wesley Keynes who entered the New York State correction system? Uh, how did that person end up where he ended up? And then what motivated you to apply to and enter the BARD program?
3: Thank you. Thank you very much for that question. Um, I, I think what underlies that question for me is your recognition that as human beings, we all have different lived experiences. And although at times culturally we, you know, sometimes reduce the people who are incarcerated to all having the same experiences, um, your question really shift that somewhat. And, and I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, so, you know, I am a, 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 a was a boy from the Bronx who grew up in the Bronx, went to school in the Bronx, left high school after graduating and went to work, you know, for a bank on wall street. And a couple of years later entered college away at college in long Island. Um, and came home one weekend and, and hanging out with friends and and an incident happened and someone lost their life. And for me, it, it, Placed me on a trajectory and on a a, a personal life's journey, which found me incarcerated for the next quarter century. Um, From the moment I entered um, the state prison system, I always knew and always had as a focus that, you know, the way I would leave prison would be so much more enhanced if I was able to complete my education. Um, When I first went in, The Pell Grant was still in effect, so there were colleges um, and universities in every New York state prison, as there were the same across the country.
0: And the Pell Um, Grants, just to be clear, these were the federal grants that would allow you to enroll.
3: Correct. It is is a a needs-based grant where if you didn't make a certain amount of money, or your family didn't, then you qualified for federal assistance. In, in attaining higher ed um, so that still existed when I went in and not long after I was in I applied for and began taking college courses but then in 1994 very soon after I started the Pell Grant was repealed for people who were incarcerated um so that left a void educationally in the system in the formal way um, in that void Many um, people who were incarcerated who were college educated and who had certain skills came together and created programs to continue a a, a, a spirit and practical application for um, educational purposes, which then led to Max Kenner coming into um, the prison where I was housed at the time with this novel idea of, you know, starting a, a college program in the prison where I was located. Ah. Um, so for me, it was an opportunity that I had to be a part of, I had to take advantage of, but it was something that was always on my radar as a necessity as I looked for, you know, how to best be not only civically engaged upon release from prison, but then also be in the best position to thrive as uh, you know, as a human being and as a family member and as a community member.
0: So, you know, one of the things that really struck me, Wes, was that in this series you see many of the students and and their own voices and, and their presences. I mean, they're really present in this documentary. And, and uh, they describe what it's like to be a full-time college student in a serious program while being a person who is incarcerated. What was that like? I mean, describe it for us.
3: Sure, it it was tough, um, and I, I would even make the argument it was necessarily tough. It was it's no tougher than you know the the family member who is both working and navigating you know higher ed in community. It's no tougher than being a parent, a single parent, and navigating parenthood, work, and school for someone in community. I think where the added layer of complexity comes in is that you're navigating work within the prison structure and education within the prison structure while in the prison structure, if that makes uh-huh. sense. Yes, it so does. You're navigating staff who may have a particular view about your worthiness to access education. You're navigating the emotional... Traumas of being incarcerated away from your family and community and loved ones. You're navigating, you know, a, a, in a traumatic space where there are these moments in your day where you walk into a classroom and literally you you are transported into a scholarly space where all of that falls away, but it's temporary. And being able to both emotionally and intellectually, you know, Take that step into the classroom and be focused and then be prepared to step out of the classroom still maintain your academic focus while navigating the realities of being incarcerated those the, that's a skill yes and the education the value of the education speaks for itself but the skill of navigating all of those layers um, in and of itself I, I, I think is something that most folks w- would I hope take away from the film um, after viewing it that it it was something that happened under a great deal of duress. Um, But I would argue that, you know, I personally would not have had it any other way if I was going to be incarcerated and I was going to have an educational opportunity. I wanted to be as tough as this program was and is.
0: Well, and, you know, I got to say your answer suggests to me, you know, some of the things I tell new students who enter law school. I say you're going to work as hard as you've ever worked, uh, but your real task in so many ways won't just be the work itself. And I got to say the work in the film that you guys do is high level and very difficult sorts of study. I tell students, you know, it's about managing yourself. And that's really what I saw people doing. The, the, the contrast between being an incarcerated person in hour one and being a student in hour two and then being going back to being an incarcerated person in hour six, I mean, that is a challenge.
3: It certainly is. It, it, it is a challenge. And, you know, the men and women in the program, we understand intimately how challenging that is. But we also understand it's it's a privilege and an opportunity that's not afforded to everyone else. Um not only in the facilities where the programs are, but just generally for people who are incarcerated. People who are incarcerated don't get an opportunity to get the high quality educational opportunity that Bard College offers. Um, and I think for that, we focus not so much on the challenge but on the opportunity at hand, and we take advantage of that, and we, we do the work. And, and it's tough. It's, it's, there are days when, you know, you're frustrated, you're wrestling with subject matter, and, and, you know, you're engaging your peers on subject matter, trying to make heads or tails of it. But then there's this moment when there's clarity, and for that, the whole struggle was worth it. Um, So I I don't know that you would find anyone in the BPI program who would, one, say the program is not challenging, Mm -hmm. and two, say that they wish that it wasn't.
0: Yes. Uh, You know, and that that brings me to something I wanted to ask Lynn. You know, Lynn, you've told all kinds of stories throughout your career as a filmmaker, Mm -hmm. some really compelling stuff. I've seen a lot of it myself. Um, And you know that there are a lot of stories out there. Uh, now, the story we see in College Behind Bars, the men and women in the program, uh, very compelling. But let's face it, you have many choices of what to do. So what made you and your co-producer, Sarah Bonstein, what got you to say, this story, this is the one I feel, we feel we must tell it to people? Why, what was so unique about it that, you, that it, it caused you to go in this direction?
2: Yeah, well, it, it sort of happened a little bit serendipitously in that, in 2012, we were invited to give a guest lecture to a class um, that was studying the history of social movements in America. And the class happened to be a BPI class at Eastern Correctional Facility. And we said, wow, that sounds really interesting. We've been going around the country talking about our prohibition film to law schools and you know different um, just community organizations all around the country and public screenings. This would be really interesting. So, we went to the facility, we went into the classroom. We were you know expecting kind of our usual conversation, perhaps, and we showed our clips and with the students in that classroom that night, we had the most interesting, provocative, profound, engaged, um, nuanced conversation that we had about that film, about the issues around why we had prohibition and why it didn't work, and what it says about our society and about our filmmaking craft It was absolutely exhilarating just on an intellectual level to be in that classroom with those students. And we were not unaware of where it was happening, right? So walking out of the class, we hadn't gone more than three or four steps. We were going down the stairs and walking out of the prison. We looked at each other and we just, our eyes were so wide and we said, wow, that was an incredible experience. Uh This would be an amazing film. The world really needs to see what these students are doing and what's happening. We had no idea. On the other hand, we were in the middle of making our series on the Vietnam War. We were really maxed out with that. I was about to go to Vietnam in a week or so after that that experience. But what happened is that I was so impressed with the students and the curriculum and everything, I got in touch with BPI, and I was offered the opportunity myself to teach in the program, which I did the following year. So I had the chance for eight weeks to be a professor at Uh BPI and get to know the students a bit better, understand the program, how it works, and really participate in a way. And, you know, every day that I went to class was with a great deal of trepidation because the students were so, um, operating at such a high level. I knew they were going to ask questions that I couldn't answer. Uh It happened every single time. And that was thrilling also. And so by the time that was over, um, and Sarah came in and did several classes with me, the class was about history and documentary kind of explaining our methodology and our practice. we, felt committed to making a film about this. And we designed it so that we would do it over time. The film is designed to show how transformative education is, as you and Wes were saying, about Mm -hmm. who are you when you start the program, who are you when you finish. We knew we couldn't make the film in a short amount of time because that transformation takes time. So we, we planned to film over four years, and the New York State Department of Corrections gave us extraordinary, unprecedented access to come in and out of the facilities with our camera crews and without over four years. Um, we, were, we filmed for more than 40 days. We collected 400 hours of material. We got to know about a dozen students who were in the program, as well as several who were on their way home. And, you know, felt that this story was important, that we had not known it, that the voices of these incarcerated students needed to be heard. And we were just, it was just an incredible privilege to spend the time with them, get to know them, and to understand what they were going through and be able to present it.
0: A story within the story that begins with your own exposure to mm-hmm. these incarcerated students. That is really uh, extraordinary in itself. Uh, I want to come back in just a minute to that level of preparation because I, I could see that. I'm a teacher, too. Uh, but mm-hmm. let me ask, just to continue the thread we're on, um, why is so important that that story be told now mm-hmm. in our current moment? What right. would you say to that?
2: You know, Sarah and I do feel that it's quite remarkable that the film is coming out in the fall of 2019 when our nation is seriously and genuinely having a very long overdue policy discussion and making progress on criminal justice reform, social justice, racial justice, um, dealing with inequities in our society in a systemic way and confronting and reckoning with our past. And I feel that it's happening in a different way now than it was when we started the project, actually. So this film took six, seven years to make. Um, And at the time we started, you know, we would tell people we're working on the Vietnam War, but we're also going to do this film about people who are incarcerated who are going to college. And many people would say, oh, okay, whatever, you know, didn't really, really get it. And now we find that everybody leans in. Um, And because this is, these are urgent questions, we say the film Sarah and I say the film raises two essential questions. What is prison for? And who in our society has access to educational opportunity? And how do those two questions um, address and reflect the question of race in America? And these are essential issues that we are really wrestling with right now.
0: Absolutely.
2: And, 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 and I will say I feel so often when these conversations have, have happened, the voices of people who have been incarcerated have not been included in having, hearing from them, their experiences, their stories, their perspective. We need to hear them,
0: yes, we do. I mean, too often, you know with America um imprisoning over two million of our fellow citizens mm-hmm. um, we just kind of put them there and forget about it, and we don't hear their voices. We don't give credit to their experiences, and uh we're we're not we don't want to be bothered. they're there to be punished, and that's that. Um, and it's only when we start listening to their perspective that we can see something that one of my guests, uh, back, uh, oh gosh, it's almost been two years. The secretary of corrections of the state of Pennsylvania, John Wetzel, he said on this show, he said, prison is criminogenic. In other words, it causes crime and therefore the fewer people who are in prison, the better. And there's nobody who will know that better than people who've been there.
2: And I'll just say, Wes and I were in Harrisburg last spring and did an event with Secretary Wetzel, um, and he's really doing important work in Pennsylvania.
0: Absolutely. You know, uh, let me return to the students. I have to tell you, as a person who teaches postgraduate students every day Uh of the week, um, these students, I relate to what you're saying about them being incredibly focused and prepared. It goes back to what Wes was saying a few minutes ago about the focus needed um, the level on which they operate. There's a sequence in the film in which you see some of the professors in their normal classrooms back at what mm-hmm. MIT or something, and right. they've got all the screens and the all the you know the, the gadgets and everything else. And the one person says, "We don't need any of that up here." You know, I mean, the students yeah. do the reading; they're ready for us. They want it.
2: Yeah, that professor Craig Steven Wilder. He's a professor of history at MIT, and he adores teaching at BPI. He travels from Boston to upper um, New York State to do this regularly. And he told me the other day that the first time he came to class to teach, one of the students said to him, Professor Wilder, uh, we had 100 pages of reading, but I have a question for you. On page 72, there's a footnote, and the footnote here doesn't really correspond with the footnote on page 83 um, they seem to contradict themselves. And I'm wondering what you think about the sources being cited. And his <laughs> eyes open so wide. He said in you know, 25 years of teaching, he never had a student ask anything about a footnote. He was lucky if they did half the reading. And so the professors, not only do they love teaching in the program and are invigorated by it, and it, it adds dimension to their practice. They make the classes harder, more demanding, because the students actually expect it, Absolutely. and they went on the MIT or Bard campus.
0: Yes, Wes. Let's come back to uh, something that Lynn just said a minute ago when she was discussing um, the ways in which uh, our education system shorts certain people. You said in the film that. Uh, there seem to be two educational systems in this country: one for those who, for a better term, uh, for lack of a better term, will rule, and one for everybody else. Um, that seems to me to capture the same sentiment. Did, were you aware of that before you became an incarcerated person? Did it come? Did that realization come to you through BPI, or was this just something you were carrying around with you?
3: Well, uh, for me. My entire young adult childhood life was built around educational attainment. Like, as a child of Caribbean parents, it's drilled into you that advancement came through the pathway of an education. And so I embraced education early, not really having much of a choice, um, and actually fell in love with history and education that, of learning. um. And I really thought that the education that I was getting through the New York City public school system, and even when I went away to college in one of the state college um, universities, was a good education, was a quality education. Uh, Amongst my peers, I thought that we were well-educated. And then I entered Bard College in the BPI program. And the, the level of expectation and the quality of work and the exposure to this second level, this next level of of education really made me question all of my earlier educational experiences. And as I reflected through the scholarly process, I realized that you know one of the things that we do in this country is that we place resources behind our values mm-hmm. right and we really do not value certain communities of people and and th- that plays out in in how we educate them what resources we give them in education um New York City is one of the most if not the most segregated school systems in the country no one speaks of that openly no one acknowledges that openly um, it's it, it's something that you won't think of When you think of the Empire State A progressive city like New York City um, But it's a reality Like there are fabulous schools in New York City And if you survey the population of people Who attend those schools They tend mostly not to be black and brown kids Right um, And you know But for someone's racial makeup Or someone's You know location socially the explanation for that is that we just don't value certain children the same way we value others and my my BPI experience really crystallized that for me so that sentiment in the film was really calling to task this notion that we have a public education system that that's really a failure Um, There are aspects of it that are wonderful in New York City we are having this debate now Around whether or not specialized high schools' right yes. admission process with an exam that you know families of privilege are able to prep their their children for years in advance, while families of color and 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 poor families just don't have the resource to allocate to 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 to, to prepping you know their children to, to to get admittance to these schools. So when we talk about you know equal opportunity when you unpack that it's really not equal um everyone is not starting at the same place equity has a very particular meaning to me it's it's not simple simply that you have access to something is that you're also equipped to take advantage of that access it means that maybe some who have you know privilege and 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 have to like Seed some of that to others for 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 us to have um true equity i I did a um a talk with someone the other day, and they you know used the analogy as the three people at you know standing on boxes and a tall person standing over a fence at a stadium is able to look right over the wall and and see into the game and the two shorter people had different amounts of stacked boxes standing Uh on them over that same wall. And, you know, this person explained that, you know, that was like equality, making sure that everyone could see over the wall. But I took a different take from that, right? I'm like, the wall is a human construct. Why is it there? Right? We have erected barriers in certain people's way that then requires a particular type of remediation to correct. Why don't we challenge the notion that there's a wall there and that anyone has to stand on a box? So, I mean, how we think about this idea of how we have chosen to order our society is historic, it's racialized, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that College Behind Bars, the people viewing it, will, will – spark a conversation in their communities around how it is we you know, treat people in prison, what access we give them to come back from some of their worst moments and to be amongst us civically whole again. But I would also hope that the conversation segues into like what does it mean to say that we educate our population and that we give children an opportunity to have a quality education. Let's not look at the Harvards. Let's look at the community colleges and and, and ask ourselves, why are resources not put into, you know, primary, secondary, and higher ed in a way that gives every American person an opportunity to really grow and thrive and be the fullest human being that they can be?
0: Let's take a quick break here. We're with Wesley Keynes, He's chief of staff at Bronx Defenders and an alum of the BPI program. And Lynn Novick, she's a documentary filmmaker, and together they both participated in the making of College Behind Bars, which will air on PBS on November 25th and 26th. Stay with us, we'll be right back.
1: Eyewitness testimony, confessions, fingerprints, and forensics all tools police and prosecutors rely on to put people in jail. But research shows these methods are far less reliable than you might think. David Harris's 2012 book, Failed Evidence, explores the myths and misconceptions around high-tech policing and explains why they persist. To celebrate our Patreon launch, we're giving away 100 signed copies of Failed Evidence to our first 100 members at the $5 level. Claim yours now and get access to more content on the members feed, at Patreon.com slash Criminal Injustice.
0: Hi, David Harris with you here for Criminal Injustice. And our guests on this episode are Lynn Novick, award-winning documentary filmmaker, and Wesley Keynes, the chief of staff of Bronx Defenders and an alum of the BPI program, Uh, They are both involved in this new documentary called College Behind Bars. It airs on PBS on November 25th and 26th. And I I just wanted to pick up our conversation, Lynn, with something you said before the break. You said that you got extraordinary access from Mm -hmm. the prison system to go in and film. And I really wondered about that as I watched it, because you see these incarcerated students in their cells. You're in their Mm -hmm. classes. Um, and I've, you know, I've spent some time as an attorney going into and out of prisons and jails earlier in my career. And I know that the security can be pretty tight. And I wondered how that happened, how you were able to pull that together.
2: Um, Sarah and I worked on this aspect for quite a long time. You know, we resolved to make the film. And then our first question was to ourselves, how are we going to do this? You know, will they let us? And as it happens, and This is important for us to say that the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, and the Department of Corrections believe in the value of education and understand its importance in their work and in making our society better. And they really um, are grateful for this program, and they see its success as an example for the country. And so we wanted to shine a light on that. And we explained to them that to do that, we had to have access over time so we could show this transformation, not just come in and out for a couple of days. And, you know, after a number of conversations, they agreed and said that we could do it. And then we weren't sure how that would work practically. What it meant was that one of our amazing producers, Mariah Duran, had to wrangle gear lists from our camera crews down to the last cable screwdriver, you know, um, memory card. Every single piece of equipment had to be listed. Uh And then the officers went through every single piece of equipment and said, is this this? Is this this? Okay." that was an hour on the way in and on the way out. Yes. So every time we went into a facility, it was you know involved a lot of staff time. It involved meticulous preparation on the part of our team, and it you know it was challenging at first. We all sort of got used to it, and we just built our schedule around that. And we tried to be mindful of certain times of day or year that weren't convenient for the facility or for the students, and be respectful of you know other things that might be happening. And um, we also tried to be, and we were, I think, very respectful of the rules of being inside these facilities so that we would be able to come back the next time. And I will say, throughout the four-year process, I had my moments of thinking, wow, we've got incredible material, but what if tomorrow somebody high up changes their mind? And they say, you no, know, we don't really think this film is a good idea anymore. We wouldn't be able to finish it. So we were very mindful that we had to be very careful. Yes. But also, as we were making the film and showing footage that we had so far internally and to PBS, you know, we had mostly footage of the students on the school floor. So as you can see from the film, you see students in class. There's bars on the window. But, you know, once you hear the conversation, you really do sort of forget where you are because it's in the classroom and it's this very, you know, sacred space of of Uh scholarship and learning, right? So people would watch um, excerpts and would say, wait, I don't really believe as a viewer that you're actually inside a maximum security prison. So and we wanted to show this dichotomy or the challenges of being incarcerated while being a student, you can't show that by just staying on the school floor. So over time, we, we kept on asking for more and more access, and showing the students in their living spaces, in their cells or dorm, dormitory area, became incredibly important. And we also recognized that that was asking a lot, not just at the facility, but of the students themselves. This is their only private space.
0: Right, showing their living this space. Very, mm-hmm.
2: Right, you know, showing us around, where do you put everything? It was revelatory, to see, and we realized that we had access that their families don't have, the families can meet in the visit room, the professors meet them in the classroom, you know, so they were welcoming us into a world that nobody else really saw, except for the prison staff, obviously, and we're very, very grateful to them for that opportunity, and we didn't take it lightly, and we didn't ask for it the first week we met people either, it was over several years of realizing, you know, we really need... You have to earn the trust
0: to make make that ask, yes...
2: And, and I, I felt that, you know, the film, film, documentary film or any film is such a powerful medium because it has the potential, the power to take you to some place you couldn't otherwise go with the camera and with the sound. And especially those scenes of students in their cells um, just capture so much of what their lives are like. And you see all the books, you see how they study, you see where they put their personal belongings, and you really begin to understand how they um, structure their existence and their, their academic work in this context.
0: Absolutely. You know, I've, I've spoken to some other documentary makers uh, over time, and one of the things that they've all told me is you can't anticipate everything that's going to happen when you start. And mm. one of the things that I think really hooks a viewer, uh, and I was just one, is about halfway through the second mm-hmm. episode, one of the students commits an infraction of prison rules, and he's removed from the program... Uh, he goes into the shoe, the uh, segregated housing unit. I, I think that's what it's called. And then he's transferred out of that prison altogether to another prison where he doesn't have access. Right. And another student, one of the very serious, uh, of the most serious students, Rodney, he gets into some trouble when uh, a staff person sees that he's writing his homework and he's used some vulgar language in the course of writing a short story that was assigned to him. And he's out of the program for a week, but thankfully restored to it. I mean, these things, um, you really get a sense of the stakes for people.
2: Yeah, and absolutely. Uh, Absolutely, we had no idea. Sarah and I did not know what would happen when we started the project on many levels. But one of the things that I do want to just clarify is that um, when students are disciplined by the prison, they are sometimes sent to SHU or keep locks or even out of the facility. But, but the Bard Prison Initiative still considers them students. They're still part of the program. They just I can't see. participate in it. So they're, they, the, the prison disciplinary structure and the Bard College structure are um, separate. So when they, But the stakes are enormously high because if they do get in trouble, they might not be able to go to class or keep up with their work or, at the worst case, sent to another facility. And then there's one other student that we met who had been disciplined um, and had failed a drug test, and he was sent out of the prison he was in, and six years later came back, oh and was back in the program again. And that's um, he tells that story in the film as well. So you know, we we sort of understood on an intellectual level that these kind of things did happen, but seeing it happen to the students that we've gotten to know so well um, was. Uh, eye-opening, to say the very least.
3: Yes. And and might I add that, I mean, that example is a great example of where the prison system mirrors our society in that people who have substance use disorder struggles end up being criminalized, and in this case, punished while incarcerated more than addressing the core issues at play. So... You know, is it an appropriate punishment to transfer someone out of a facility because they tested positive for drugs as opposed to maybe placing them in a drug program? Um, Is it an appropriate sanction for society to incarcerate people who have substance abuse issues as opposed to providing, you know, uh, um, treatment options? So I, I think that there there's so many layers to the film that will really make us examine some of the decisions that we make. If we recognize, which we do, and, and even those on the right who, and those who would oppose access to education by people who are incarcerated, don't argue this fact. We recognize that attaining a college education while incarcerated significantly reduced you know, someone's recidivating back into the system, you know, within three to five years. Yes. So someone who's struggling with the substance abuse, the response of the prison system is to punish them by removing them from one of the main things that have been shown to keep them on track upon release. It just doesn't make sense. It's it's, it's a very upside down system that's not very thoughtful in a progressive way.
2: And I would add that it's not, as Wes said, it's not exactly um, transparent to the outside world. So we need, we need much more light shown on all of these questions so people can actually have some understanding of the decisions that our government is making.
0: Absolutely. And, and you know, I'll add one other thing there. It It is not uh, – it is also – detrimental to public safety. I mean, I think a lot of people might hear this or watch the show and say, well, okay, this is great for them, but how does it make me safer? The way it makes you safer is Mm. just what Wes said, it keeps people from engaging in criminal activity and bringing them back to prison and staying in that life. And that makes the whole society better off and safer, even apart from the the gains to the individual and their family and their community. It makes everybody safer too.
2: No question. There's absolutely no question. I, you know, uh, we really hope that this film and the stories of the students um, and you know, the process of getting to know them and seeing them as fully dimensional human beings, as Wes said at the beginning, will help uh, our society at least have a more informed conversation about what policies we have and what needs to change.
0: Yes. Well, you, you know, let me ask a final question here for both of you. Um, you know, when you get done with a long project like this, something you've both been involved in, you've watched it, you've made it, you've, and, and now it's about to go out in the world and people are going to see it. What do you hope they take away from this in the end? What is your hope, each of you, for what people will learn and understand from watching College Behind Bars?
3: I hope that one of the takeaways is the acknowledgement of the humanity and complexity of the people who we have chosen to cage um, because of acts of their own at times, because of injustice at others. However it is that people found themselves incarcerated, the fact is that the vast majority, over 95 percent, will return to communities at some point. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the acknowledgement of the humanity in the people who are incarcerated and the fact that they will return to community will spark a discussion about how we want people to return and live amongst us. And and. You know, what opportunities for transforming lives and and rehabilitating are available to people who are incarcerated? I would also hope that it spark a discussion around what it means to educate in this country, what it means to provide a quality education for every single member of our society. And if we do that to the maximum in an ideal sense, how much better and how much more thriving our country will be as a society. Lynn? Thank you.
2: I I mean, West really summed it up so beautifully. I, I don't think there's too much more that I could add, except to say that for Sarah and me and for our whole team, it has been life changing to be part of this journey with the students and to see how transformative education has been for them, their communities, their families, and to say that. It's helped us understand the value of a liberal arts education, the value of um, the joy of learning and deep thinking and being civically engaged. Rodney says in the film that, you know, college helps the people in the program to become civic beings. And in this time of polarized, um, uncivil society that we see all around us, we feel this sort of inspiring story can give us hope that we can all become better civic beings.
0: Wesley Keynes, he is the chief of staff for Bronx Defenders and an alum of the Bard Prison Initiative. Lynn Novick is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Mr. Keynes appears in and Miss Novick produced and directed, along with her co-producer Sarah Botstein, College Behind Bars, which premieres on PBS on November twenty-fifth and twenty-sixth. Do yourself a favor and see it. Thanks very much for being my guest on Criminal Injustice.
3: Thank you. Thank you so
0: much. It was a pleasure. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Lawyers Behaving Badly. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the Indianapolis Star and the ABA Journal News Online features lawyer Curtis Hill of Indiana. Oh, I'm sorry, that would be Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill. At least he's still Attorney General now as I'm taping this. The trouble started for lawyer behaving badly, I mean Attorney General Hill, on the evening of March 14 and 15, 2018, when he decided to attend a gathering of legislative staffers at an august institution called A.J.'s Lounge. While there and enjoying the various adult beverages that A.J.'s had to offer, Lawyer, I mean Attorney General, Hill made several of the women there very uncomfortable with the way he, um, gotta say it, groped them. Uh, Four of the women at this gathering, four, came forward to complain about Hill's behavior, and that blossomed into a disciplinary hearing before the Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission. All four of them testified, one after the other, about Hill's touching them. Uh, Just so you have a sense of what we're talking about, there was testimony concerning Hill's hands on buttocks, touching a back where his hand should not be, at least part of a hand going under somebody's dress, you get the picture, along with much testimony that Hill appeared intoxicated. Surprise! What says Attorney General Hill to these accusations? Yes, I was there, he said, but I didn't do anything lewd or inappropriate. I am just, quote, gregarious and a physically engaging person, he said. His public persona, Hill said, is that he's quote stiff and unapproachable, but actually he said, quote, I'm a fun guy. Yes, the gregarious fun guy defense. That should work well. But once the reports of the four women made it into the media as they understandably would, with him being the Attorney General, Hill was in for another surprise. Another woman came forward. She hadn't been at the party at AJ's. Heck no. She worked for Hill before he was Attorney General. He had been the prosecutor for Elkhart County, Indiana. And in that capacity, as her boss... Hill propositioned her rather crudely in 2016. What do you know? Perhaps the bar thing is just the latest of some number of incidents, not a drunken one-time deal. According to the woman, Hill's former subordinate, Hill said to her, quote, we should blank because it would be so hot and other encouragements to have sex with him all because of the potential for hotness. Well, we will watch this case on your behalf, and not because it would be hot. Rather, we will want to see if the Indiana Disciplinary Commission will do the right thing and at the very least suspend Attorney General Hill from practice if it doesn't pull his license altogether. No law license. Can you still be the Attorney General then? I don't think so. That is Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that is it for this episode of Criminal Injustice. Remember to subscribe to Criminal Injustice so you can always get us in your favorite podcast app every time and never miss an episode. Our news bonuses or another story of a lawyer behaving badly. Remember, we're now listener supported. Please go to Patreon.com slash Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back. With you next time.
1: Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com criminalinjustice criminal injustice to become a member and access the premium content feed. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.
0: The national initiative to build community trust and justice began just a year after Ferguson. The initiative aimed to improve criminal justice outcomes and police-community relations in six cities. Now the results are in. Did it work? And what can we learn as we look for ways to improve the system? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at Criminal Injustice Podcast dot com.